three, two, two, one. one. Let's, Let's go. go. <laughs> there we go. I'm the host of the PB Podcast, joined with the co-host, the man, the myth, the legend out of uh, out of Australia from the Outback, Matt the Sip Scipio man. Uh, I enjoyed this show, dude. I'm glad we we're a little quiet. Got the kids. You got uh, your office there in Australia, so we did the little quiet three, two, one. I liked it though. Yeah, 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 yeah. We couldn't we couldn't scream right now. I have to have to respect the uh, everyone else around me. <laughs> right right uh but it was just cool man I, i'm glad we were able to catch up talked a little bit about uh the the whole dinosaur thing how do you say that again please 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 plesiosaur 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 um obviously what you're discovering out there with uh with your own phd and the work you're doing and next week we're going to dive into more of the details with stan like you said but I'm super excited about what you've said so far, man, like reading the Magma Metal series, you know, several times, me reading these ideas that seem to really have, uh, I don't know, like a, an impact on the way we as geoscientists go into a problem and start addressing the data and having a, a like a geologic framework to just look at it through and um, I think it's really, really powerful and uh, I'm always learning with you, man. Yeah, man, it's it, it it really is. Uh like I I definitely think it's just, you know, integrating multiple, like we like we've always talked about, right? Multiple expertise into one, right? Or not into one, but just into your interpretation, right? I think that's the best way to go about, you know, any kind of, you know, new problem that you're presented. So you want to address it in as many different ways as you can opposed to starting small and going big, start as big as you can and, and, you know, narrow down that focus from there as the data comes in and as you can, you know, cross things off the list, but right. yeah, man. Yeah. Diving back in the magma metal series has been, you know, it's always been eye opening, but just like, again, it's just like, oh my gosh, it's so much. And like, it's so much good stuff. It, it, it literally just takes like a good 10 minutes per page just because you're rereading it so many times and you're right. looking up different terms and definitions. And then you go back and you reread it again yeah. to see if you get it. And you're like, oh, now this term popped out that I didn't know. And you go back and you look yeah. that up. But uh, but yeah, man, it's yeah, it's it's really neat as far as the project, as far as where I feel like this is going and, you know, finally getting back out to get in the field in March. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it to finally actually start collecting some rock from my study area opposed to every other study area opposed to mine. Dude, but, uh, I can't wait till that data on that rock, on those particular samples that have never been analyzed in this specific way, using this model yeah. and this approach. When that happens, dude, that is so exciting. I feel like we're like, we're the first, dude. We're the first to be looking at this stuff. We're the first to be attacking this stuff. Uh, my camera's back oh, on. he's back. He's back. Uh, and then the, I, I, you definitely need to bring some pictures and some results from uh, Synchrotron, dude. I got to get Stan's total opinion on this thing. Yeah, I dude. Wanna, I want to. I need there. to. I need to. Because well, that's part of it. Is I mean, if I do show them, right? Like we can't air those. <laughs> okay. Like for obvious reasons, right? Because yeah. like they'll probably be in, they're going to be in publications for the most part. So I just yeah. don't want them out quite yet. But uh, yeah, dude. Uh, it's it, right now it's just the process of like processing all the samples right because it's like you have like these super gnarly 3d images that have been like taken and it's just like basically stitching them together in a way that then you can then 3d model them and that's a whole nother expertise in itself that i have 
no experience in that I'm learning how to do on the fly. With more than 35 years of experience in the industry, Impact Exploration Services has you covered for all your mud logging, geosteering, and geoscience service needs. Impact Exploration Services covers every basin in the lower 48 and can customize the services to your needs. Impact Exploration Services sets the professional standard. And the next time you have problems to solve and questions to answer, think Impact Exploration Services. This episode is brought to you by Trunkline. You probably know Trunkline as the company that makes the legendary oil field horizontal drilling socks. And it's true. Our drill baby drill socks featuring a heel to toe wellbore are 100% American made and are designed right in the heart of the oil and gas industry. But did you know that Trunkline is also a revolutionary digital marketing tool that can transform the way you advertise your oil field services? For only $800 a month, you can showcase your company's project track record on Trunkline and our automated platform will boost your exposure through social media, email marketing, SEO, and more. Now, whenever one of your new customers asks you, can you show me an example of your work? You can simply turn them to your Trunkline portfolio. It's more effective than a brochure, it's less expensive than sponsoring a whole other golf course, and easier than maintaining your website. Join more than 200 service companies on Trunkline by signing up at register.trunkline.com today. Let's go. Dude, I have so many questions, man. Like, I've read the Magma Metal series probably four times, and I still, like, don't know fucking shit, I feel. Like I have it pulled up again. Like I'm rereading it again. I think I reread it like twice a year. And every time I'm like, I'll get closer to understanding it. And it's just like, I still don't even understand what like calcalcalic versus just calcic. Like uh, just those two systems, dude. Like I know. It's uh okay, yeah, it's all to do with uh well, aluminum, I guess, at the end of the day. Yeah, some major stuff, but what I was learning most of right now is, is uh, so you got your sources all ironed out once you figure out that the AC and K ratios and yeah how to make uh, alkalinity calls. <clears throat> then the process kicks on, which is all about water, halogens, and oxidation state. Mm-hmm. And that's where I got a big full-blown education these last couple of months doing this project with them. How important it is to understand those those three things in regards to the process, it's their, it, their individual impact on the process. What's going to fractionate, what, mm-hmm. what elements are going to stay in, what elements are going to go away. Like it's dude. Dude. And that's, I mean, that's where I'm having my biggest issues is because like, I don't understand and like the, the cutoffs in which, certain things stay within the melt and then certain things fractionate out. Like some things I'd like you inherently understand, right? Like from Bowen's reaction series, right? Like from it's like most basic principle, but then like when you get into like the nitty gritty and it's like discussing like these different, like phlogopites that, you know, potentially will like, like come out next solution versus like when they do stay in solution and it's only a small little change and either like alkalinity that will like keep them in or like make them go out. And it's just like, fuck, man. Like, yeah. how did you figure this out? Yeah. I think that's the more, more impressive thing is like, the more and more I read it, the more and more it's like, holy shit, like how complex the system is. 
like and how they were systematically able to like break it apart in yeah. like in in the way they did it like i mean i'll probably be reading this for the rest of my life and still never understand it <laughs> but uh like my goal is to like at least get like 50 percent of it down it's yeah it's yeah a lot of projects a lot of things are moving forward but this episode is all about skippo this episode oh, dude. is getting to catch up uh what the f happened last episode we did was what november yeah dude that's when things were super hectic on my end it was like yeah we did that episode in november and then i ended up teaching a graduate like course yeah so it was advanced marine geotechnologies what? was like the name of the course so it was for like third year so third year is like seniors here and then honors and graduate level students were taking the course so essentially what happened was my advisor he was the one that was supposed to be teaching the course and he was in the falkland islands off of argentina doing uh research and what ended up happening was uh he was supposed to be back like the first day of the course and because it was like 10 flights that he basically had to take to yeah. get back to Australia, he one flight got delayed and it fucked him up. So he couldn't make it back until Thursday. So instead of being back Monday, he came back Thursday. So I kind of had to step in and then teach those fucking three days. Like we kind of had it planned just in case. Yeah. But uh, yeah. But then it like it became real. Like, OK, no, you're teaching the course now. And it's it was a condensed course. So it was a semester's worth of material in like a week and a half. So like those first what four the... days, like it was like four hours of lecturing in the morning and then like a four hour lab in the afternoon. What? And it was just. Yeah, dude, it was it was hectic. Wow. <laughs> uh, so uh, that was like the last thing I did. And then right after that ended, uh, I went to the synchrotron with my advisor uh that was that thing that i posted about in the phd with pbe and essentially i'll, I'll pull up an image of it later but yeah. uh we were doing like these like these x-ray imaging of like these samples that were collected oh, in the yeah. field yeah yeah and it, it was fucking dude just a whole nother expertise and world that i never knew existed and then like stepping into it and then sitting there with like two experts in the field so we had this guy Joe, dr joseph brevet from university of sydney he came in to help uh, and then the guy there antoine like this like russian dude who's just an absolute animal like brilliant one of the most brilliant human beings i've ever met like a stan level brain but then just a party animal like he would like <laughs> like he was like he would like crush it and then just like you know like he's just like he's like i'm out and then you see him the next day and he's just like coffee and you're just like all right Antoine, what's going on <laughs> But, now, when you uh, say x-ray, this is like x-ray diffraction or what do you mean x-rays? So it's like x-ray image. So essentially what they're doing is they're firing just like a standard x-ray into these samples, except at a much higher concentration and like various frequencies to basically image fossils or whatever we were looking for within these these rocks. So, so the, radi the sample, actual radiation like a. Yeah. Yeah. So the room that they that we did it in was developed for uh x-ray radiation as far as for breast cancer treatment okay but when they're not doing the treatments at the synchrotron because that's like a huge process right they only do like one or two of those a year um and there's still like ongoing studies as far as like the validity of that like using that technology for uh breast cancer treatment but uh so we could just like yeah use the uh 
use the space to put our samples in. And yeah, dude, we found some super dope things, but it was, it was interesting to see because it was like a big factor in like the image quality was the lithology versus the different lithology, the rock versus the difference of the uh, whatever the fossil or whatever we were trying to image. So for example, like with those paleo souls that I posted, it was like, you have like this, uh, like these, or arid braided stream fluvial deposits with like these paleosols in them. So like those paleosols, right, are going to be like more like more evaporites per se, right? These versus like that sandstone. Like paleosols are like class that rip up from the paleosols the... are like just think of like fossil roots or like rootlets. Right. Okay. So you have like a root fossil and then you know whatever it is dies. But that root remains. And then like as it gets buried, it like degenerates, but then it'll leave behind like, you know, various salts and anhydrites around it. And uh, yeah, and it'll be in like very specific patterns. So like you can tell, you know, like when something is like a like a naturally fractured versus something that's like biotic. Right. Because it'll have like a specific dendritic pattern versus something that's like more structural. And that was, those were the things that were differentiating those. So some of them we were like, oh, these are rootlets. And then others things that we saw were like, oh, this is structural. Like we were seeing like the various fracture patterns and fluid migration within like these sandstones. And we were like, oh shit, that's that's not a root. That's badass. (laughs) Yeah. So the goal later on is because right now we're still processing, like that's a whole nother world is like just processing these, the images that we, uh, we collected. So I, compare it to like seismic processing there are a lot of similarities as far as like you know like merging that data and then the filters that you apply in order to like actually 3d image the things well but at the same time uh yeah there there are a lot of fucking issues with the x-ray machine itself so like yeah dude let's talk talk about that just for a minute unless you don't know much about exactly what's going on there but like the x-ray yeah let me pull up some images just so we can. The idea of just x-ray and why it's so effective is the radiation goes through your body, soft tissues and skin and like ligaments and stuff of our body don't really care and respond to the radiation, but the calcium dense bones have, yeah. like, they, they light up. They're real bright. Yeah. They pop. Yeah. So that's the, stuff that I couldn't really tell you the difference as far as like the use, like the, you know, like the technical background on how the x-ray works like that. That's just kind of out of my pay grade for the time being. (laughs) But uh, it's like, I read a bunch of papers right before we went, but it was like, dude, in and out, you know what I mean? Who came up with But but yeah, so this is where we were. So like, let me just kind of explain the setup because it's pretty freaking sick. So you have this massive setup and it's called the synchrotron. Uh, and essentially you have these particle accelerators that basically sit in this ring. And what happens is you have these particles accelerating in this initial ring, and then they transfer out into this outer ring. And as you can kind of see, there are these different, like kind of like little facilities that are set on the outside. Yeah. And each one of these is like a different kind of, uh, they, they use some sort of, uh, different kind of like imaging techniques. So for example, there's like an XRF, XRM, uh, micro CT, and then all these other like IR. And then like this stuff was like super crazy. This is like the high level engineering and physics, 
physics stuff. Like, I don't even know what these machines do. Like I walked by and I like looked, thought I was in like a freaking spaceship or something like that. dude. It was like <laughs> straight up like engineering, like an engineering is like what dream, but uh, so there, it's the it, particles are electrons. They're spinning electrons. Yeah. yeah so they're and basically, they, they're pumping these electrons through here and they have like these magnets that essentially will accelerate them to just it's, I don't know how close it is, but it's just under the speed of light. Uh, and so these, yeah, so these things are fucking cranking. And, and then, then they, you got a sample go of your rock. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then they go into the individual imaging center whenever they're in use. Right. And then the area that I was in was actually, so I was in the satellite building, which is out here, but it's still connected to the synchrotron. So I wasn't in the main facility. I was in a separate facility. And that's where the uh, the X-ray is. Um, but yeah, because they, they wanted to build the X-ray satellite mainly for like the breast cancer stuff and all of that, because that's where a lot of the funding came in. So they didn't want to have it in the main facility. They wanted to have it their own facility for it. Um, but yeah, so they from the beam line, they fire these particles into the X-ray. And then like that's how you can get these like super high resolution images. Like it's crazy. Like you're basically scanning these rocks and you can see exactly what's inside of them as far as the fractures, if they're fossils inside, imaging those fossils perfectly to see like the very fine details of like the bone or, you know, if it's like some sort of arthropod or mollusk, like as far as the structure of the shell, like little like ornate little patterns on the shell that you wouldn't be able to see like any other way, right? Like even if you're chipping it away, like you'll chip those things off. Right. But you can see them clear as day within the x-ray imaging. And yeah, just, dude, it was gnarly. Like we had three days on the uh, on the beam, on beam time and we were freaking running samples all three days nonstop. So it was, oh, I bet. It was th- it probably doesn't yeah, happen so, very often. Yeah. So it was all three of us. And basically, like we worked in shifts. And so someone was sleeping and the other two were always on the machine. And it was just like constant. And so, like, I think I got like probably four hours of sleep, maybe <laughs> in three times. Yeah, I was the youngest one, so it was like I tried my best. Joseph, the the guy from Sydney, he was he probably got an hour of sleep. It was insane. Like that dude, that dude was a different kind of beast. But like, <laughs> yeah, you needed someone there the entire time just to make sure the sample was running properly, and then like when the sample was finished, like switching out for the next one, and then prepping the next sample. And all of that, but now when you yeah, say dude, sample, was, you're talking like a hand sample or a crop, like a thin section. It's hand sample. So like uh, they varied in size. So some samples were, let's say, like let's see if you can see this, as big as like that. Okay. So some were a little bit bigger. Some were really, really small. Like the smallest samples we had were the size of, like I'll show you. You'll you'll recognize that bad boy. You put a Herkimer but, diamond in that thing. No, oh, no, I brought it. Yeah, we didn't have time to shoot it. We didn't have time oh, to shoot it. Next time, man. though, I'm, I applied for a, another grant to get there. Uh, this time to use the X-ray and then the XRF. So nice. I'm hoping to do some do some XRF work there in like the near future. Wow. Yeah, it's a pretty sweet facility because if you get the grant to like they pay for everything, the flight, the housing. So like you literally just post up there for three days, run all your samples. And then like, yeah. How much do you think it costs to run that machine every day? Oh, dude. I don't know, dude. Hundreds of thousands of dollars a day, dude. The amount of energy and power and like the equipment, is just insane. Wow. It like, yeah, it like, 
it, it's it's absolutely mind blowing the amount of stuff that's in there. Like wow, now does I, it- I couldn't I couldn't imagine. Like I couldn't imagine how much it costs. Probably not that much, but in my mind, that's how much it costs. It's non-destructive. Like it doesn't do anything to the outside to the rocks. No, no, it doesn't fuck them up at all. Um, I mean, I guess you could if you like didn't know what you were doing. But like I said, with Joseph there and then Anton, like they were, dude, they were so good at like, okay, this is what the rock is. This is the lithology. This is like the average density. This is probably what the sample is going to be. And they plug in the parameters and then off it went. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Damn, dude. That's freaking wild. What an experience, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So that was, yeah. So that was like three days and then like went right back to the States after that. Like I literally flew back, had one day to like pack my stuff and then I flew back to the States for the holidays. Wow. Now we skipped a part because didn't you discover some, some big dinosaur at the same time? Oh yeah. (laughs) The same time. So this was actually back in October. Uh, just the press release didn't happen until December, but, uh, yeah. So the story behind this was, it was, it was pretty freaking amazing. So with more than 35 years of experience in the industry, impact exploration services has you covered for all your mud logging, geo steering and geoscience service needs. Impact exploration services covers every basin in the lower 48 and can customize the services to your needs. Impact Exploration Services sets the professional standard. And the next time you have problems to solve and questions to answer, think Impact Exploration Services. This episode is brought to you by Trunkline. You probably know Trunkline as the company that makes the legendary oil field horizontal drilling socks. And it's true. Our drill baby drill socks featuring a heel to toe wellbore are 100% American made and are designed right in the heart of the oil and gas industry. But did you know that Trunkline is also a revolutionary digital marketing tool that can transform the way you advertise your oil field services? For only $800 a month, you can showcase your company's project track record on Trunkline and our automated platform will boost your exposure through social media, email marketing, SEO, and more. Now, whenever one of your new customers asks you, can you show me an example of your work? You can simply turn them to your Trunkline portfolio. It's more effective than a brochure, it's less expensive than sponsoring a whole other golf course, and easier than maintaining your website. Join more than 200 service companies on Trunkline by signing up at register.trunkline.com today. Let's go. So my advisor comes into my office and he's like, hey, um, this, uh, this woman out in Cannington Station, which is like this cattle station in you know the middle of the outback it's like nine hours from from the coast uh they said they found something would you be interested in you know going out there and checking out checking this out i'm like yeah sure whatever like i want to get out in the field it's not my study area but hey i'm not going to say no to go looking at rocks and uh so it was me my advisor who's the curator for the museum here in town and for uh so the museum of tropical queensland and then um one other person from the museum from uh brisbane and then another graduate student and so we just go out there and uh we get to the site and to the location and my advisor's just like whoa and at the time i didn't understand like the gravity of the discovery there was like one uh media guy out there pete with us as well and pete was freaking awesome pete was the man uh but uh yeah so it was this plesiosaur and for me like you know, like both of us, like I, dinosaurs are cool. 
marine reptiles are cool fossils are cool but it's like definitely not my area of expertise and like right. i didn't realize like the gravity of like this discovery until like we got back uh so like and it was super cool though like the woman that found this plesiosaur it was like her and her friends like when they're not like herding cattle they'll just like go out for a couple of days looking for fossils on their property and uh yeah they freaking discovered this plesiosaur like at the surface so that was that was like the interesting thing to me was like this place was like littered and I, I mean, littered with these massive marine reptile fossils. So like plesiosaurs, ichthyosaurs, and these chronosauruses, like everywhere. Uh, wow. Like we spent some time like looking around and I actually found uh, an ichthyosaur as well as uh, like a couple turtles, like cretaceous right? turtles. Yeah. yeah. Like Were wild, you able to bring those stuff. home? Did you bring those no. home? No, nah, they're, they're going to the museum. Dude, what kind of what kind of rocks was it all in? So this is where like my geology brain went and this is where the confusion started to occur. <laughs> so I was looking at uh so it was like this kind of the sediment was I want to say it was clay but it had like these layers of gypsum in it as well as uh and it was like this brown kind of it was a swelling clay i'm not sure if it was smectitic it, i mean it was definitely smectitic but i'm not sure what exactly kind of clay it was but what was super interesting was all the fossils are hosted in these calcite concretions so you have this and it's supposedly you know like this you know marine environment that's pretty calm it's like an it's an interior seaway so similar to like what we'd see with the cretaceous interior seaway in america Okay. So that's used as like a proxy for this area of Australia during this time. And uh, but yeah, so it was fascinating where all the bones of these creatures were hosted within these calcite concretions almost perfectly. Like they wow. they acted as like a cast in like preservation. Like wow. here, let me pull up an image of it. Now, any petrified wood all in the area? Oh yeah, a ton. That's actually what uh yeah, so let me. It's a fucking it low, it's a low grade hydrothermal thing going on, dude. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. But so this is the area or this is like one of the. <laughs> Look at you, found. dude. <laughs> Look yeah, at dude. you. Yeah, dude, that's me up here. Yeah, uh, this is Cass, the, the woman that found it. This is uh, Espen. And then the other two were on the expedition with us. But uh, yeah, dude. So what, what's crazy is like, so you can see like the true vertebrae size are like these guys up here. Wow. So. Like they're not super big vertebrae, but the way the calcite concretion was, it like created this giant cast around them. And it, it, it happens with all of the fossils around here. Like they'll, they'll be broken into pieces, but like for the most part, they're in these giant casts, which is great for preservation. Right. And yeah. then what also was interesting is like you would, the way they would find them, right, is you'd find the bones at the surface because of like the swelling and contracting throughout the seasons because you have your wet season and your dry season so the clays essentially act as like this like they squeeze all the bones to the surface so you would find like a bone fragment on the surface and then you dig down like you know five ten feet and what was cool is they had a dozer and like a bat and a and a digger back there so like they were actually able to like strip off like the topsoil <laughs> which made it like super easy these yeah, I thought I was joke. expecting I was expecting to be shoveling the entire time. I thought <laughs> yeah. like, dude, that's why I'm here. And it's like, meanwhile, they had all this heavy machinery to do all this. The but old yeah, ladies dude, so did. That, the old ladies had what? these tractors. 
Yeah, dude, it was a, I mean, it's a full blown cattle station. So like they had all this equipment and all this stuff there. And like, uh, her hobby is looking for these fossils. Like that's what she loves to do. Like herd cattle and fucking find awesome fossils. And, uh, yeah, dude, it was, it was, it was a trip, but so the, yeah, so this was actually, so this is, let's see if I can show, come on. So this is actually a piece of the petrified wood from the area, but yeah, dude, like it's everywhere. Like we found Uh, like logs of it. And then like, that's what there's a ton of stuff going on. So like there was this, I like, we did some like kind of exploring around and like, we found like this ash flow layer and then within the ash yeah and so with above this ash flow we had this mudstone but it wasn't like a black mudstone so it was more of like a just kind of a crumbly uh it was kind of like orange light gray but within that mudstone there were these veins of like massive hydrothermal alteration and let me show you this bad boy oh man it's so hard to see with the but so the mudstone itself looks like that. Okay. So it's like this orange color. You but got whole rock chemistry veins. on that? No, not yet. And like you can kind of see it, but it's like you have like iridescent colors. You have like pinks and purples yeah. and oranges yeah. and all that kind of stuff on this. And you would have these veins that would like go through it and totally change and alter the chemistry of these rocks. And then located about three and a half. I mean... 30, not three and a half, 30 kilometers away was a mine that was mining this stuff in a, in a different section. What, but, they, what was the mine for? So they were just all kinds of stuff. They were doing like copper as well. I mean, let me double check because I, I don't want to, I don't want to mess this up. Dude, that's super been interesting. The calcite, uh, the calcite, like, um, conc- like, what are you calling it? A concretion? Concretion. Yeah. So that's what. But that's the other thing, right? So, like, I dove into literature immediately after Australia mine. Silver lead. That's what it is. Silver Not lead. copper. Yeah, it's a silver lead mine. But uh, what was super interesting, right, was, uh, yeah, so they were calling them. I mean, that's typically what they call them in the sedimentary record, right? So, when you look at, uh, and, that, and, dude, that's where I feel like there's this disconnect between hard rock and soft rock is like, I feel like this is like, if a hard rock geologist were to look at this, it'd be a pretty simplistic concept to understand. But in soft rock, they just use it as a concretion. And like the way they define it in literature is like the majority of the literature that they have comes out of uh, out of the UK specifically, because that's where they do have a lot of like these calcite concretions, but it's not the same. It's a, it, like reading the literature, it's a totally different environment, but that's what they use in Australia as reference material for what's going on. Um, and essentially what they say is like, as these bones are buried, you have this affinity for like this carbonate to grab onto something within these, like, uh, within like these clay layers and they'll just gravitate towards the bones and then begin to precipitate once they make contact with the bones. And like, that's it. And it's like most general sense, but yeah, I was like, mm. Yeah, it's, that's that's not what's going on, especially when you have like gypsum layers in there and like yeah. all these other things. It's like that's that's not that's yeah, not what's happening here. Weird. There's something else that's like that's, there's something else that's going on. And these gypsum layers, like, where do they lie? They lie within like these fracture planes and these fault planes. So you can and that was like what was interesting about one of the other samples we found. Uh, let me pull. 
So I wonder uh, if it's not get... in this art. It's not in this article, but we we found so there were two plesiosaurs that we excavated. One of them was that like full one that you saw in the picture there without a head, and then we uh, extracted this juvenile, and it was the head, the neck, and then like the left shoulder. And then right where the left shoulder was, this fault there was this gypsum layer that split the split the specimen, and so that stuff was faulted in one orientation. We couldn't find the rest of it, like the rest of this. Like I don't know how much it slipped on that gypsum layer, but it was slipped wow. a ton. Yeah, so we have no idea where the rest of that specimen is. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Do you have any idea which way it was slipping? No, that was the one thing because it was like, damn, because uh, the does are busted it up so bad. <laughs> <laughs> like the slicking lines like there, there weren't like really like so you can kind of tell the orientation of slip but like how much like no clue interesting yeah wow but i would guess it's going to be alkali calcic <clears throat> alkali calcic is going to be the uh volcanic ash if you get whole rock on the volcanic ash yeah it'll come back as that orange layer in the magma mag if okay. there's lead zinc in the area if they're mining lead zinc that's that's I think al- alkali calcic is is what or lead be. silver. Or you said lead silver. Lead yeah, s- yeah, lead silver. Yeah. I think lead. Yeah, I th- I'm still going with alkali calcic. Okay, the orange layer. Yeah, hey, I buy it. <laughs> <laughs> Just <because laughs> but yeah, dude, it was. It, but yeah, so we go out there and dude, like the whole trip was freaking awesome. Like uh, Cass and Pip, the owners of the station, they hosted us in like their. They have like this like section of housing for people that come in and work on the station. So like we stayed in like these little like rooms and like we had like full facilities, showers, stuff like that. And uh, yeah, they were just awesome hosts, like two of the best people. Like it, it was almost out of a movie too. like hit <laughs> the owner. Like I've like, he was straight up a cartoon character. Like he would not stop talking shit to us the entire time. About like we were what? out digging in the hole and he's like, he's working the backhoe, like taking off samples and just constant everyone. Like just like me, my advisor, the photographer, he, they had this guy who was also working on the station that was coming out and helping. And then like when he'd show up, it was just like, dude, it was like, I've never seen someone so quick witted. And just like able to tear a human being apart. It was it was oh, the man. best. Yeah. And like what was what was really funny is like our uh the media guy was doing like interviews with like uh Cass and Espen, the my advisor. And uh we get back to the we get back to like our living quarters and he just starts laughing. He's like, dude, I can't use any of the audio. And we're like, why? Like, did he like too windy or something like that? It's like, no, you can just hear Pip in the background just talking shit the entire time. So like they had to redo all the interviews away from him <laughs> the next day. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so we go out there, we collect all these samples and like we went through the process of like plaster casting them and like removing them like the the proper way, which was super fascinating just because like you know, totally out of my realm of expertise, like just yeah. kind of sitting back and watching like experts do their thing. And yeah. then, yeah, like for me, I didn't think much about it. I'm like, oh, cool. We collected these things. They got shipped back to the museum. Um, and we just kind of like, you know, I just kept doing my thing. And then all of a sudden December rolls around and they do this huge press release for like this discovery. And I was like, oh, okay. Like <laughs> that's wild. 
<laughs> yeah, just like right place, right time. And then it just got to the point where it was like, I thought it was just going to be something in like the local paper. And then it was like all throughout Australia. And then it was even on CNN in the States. And I was like, family members were calling me saying they saw me on the news. And I was like, yeah. what is going on? Like, <laughs> yeah, so it, it was wild. It was so wild. They're yeah. like, freaking skids. Look at them digging yeah. up fossils. <laughs> Dude, and like they just blew it totally out of proportion. They were like, "Oh yeah, Skips was like leading this expedition and all this other stuff." And it was like, he it couldn't be it. further from yeah. the truth. It was just yeah. like, dude, I just I was just happy to be at the right place at the right time. Wow. Well, man, <laughs> I so was just there. You... I was just there to look at rocks and drink beer. That's it. <laughs> nice. Uh, what's the what's the drill down, man? What are you drilling down into right now? We're kind of catching up, and uh, so yeah, yeah. So I mean kind of like we talked pre-show like with the magma metal series and stuff like that and uh I, I wanted to really kind of poke around in you know your brain and stan's brain in regards to different systems in regards to tectonic settings so in regards to like a back arc setting what would be the fractionation sequence in that kind of a setting versus you know, something that's more of just extension or rifting, right? Or is that the same, right? Like, and so, and, you know, what is, and like talking about different angles of subduction as far as slab angles and stuff like that in regards to, hey, when you're subducting, you know, oceanic crust versus continental crust, yeah. right? So what what are going to be your changes within the metal series in, in regards to those? And kind of like putting together this Bowen Basin, like, structural story of its like history and all of honestly all of eastern australia because it is such a mystery and there is a lot of confusion around it like there is a lot of people that say it is a back arc basin setting like a lot of these triassic basins but then there's like things that you can kind of look at and say and eh, not quite like it doesn't really point to that so i want to like kind of take it from a different direction because a lot of it is like uranium lead geochronology and I want to use that still because you still need to use that. Like you still need to have defined dates for different events, right? Like yeah. timing is definitely key, but also incorporating a lot of like bulk geochemistry and understanding yeah. a lot more about, you know, what kind of magmas these were and what kind of like intrusions these are and how are those are affecting the provenance. And then really kind of picking apart like these, not only the the volcanism that occurred, but also like the different paleo flow directions of these, uh, of these sedimentary basins, because you have this mass vorogenic event from the East, but you have paleo flow Northwest, like North, North, South. I mean, so depending on where you are in the basin. So if you have this event in the East, why is our paleo flow direction North South, right? That doesn't make sense. You know, something else is going on there. Like, why is, you know, why is the accommodation being filled from that orientation when you have apparently a mountain building west event to the east? So you should be going east-west opposed to south-north. But right. So you th you're saying the Bowen Basin at this point mm -hmm. is subduct. There's a subducting plate underneath it, you think? Yeah. And it's mud volcanism. You think serpentinization is definitely tied to this? I think it's tied to it in different then. So that's the main thing I want to figure out. It's, it's tied to it, but the timing of it is something I need to figure out. Um, and then just kind of like going to these outcrops. Cause I'm planning on going into the field in April 
So that's when I really plan on, you know, spending two weeks out there collecting as many samples as I can and then going back out again in June. But uh, yeah, it's, there's, there's just so many things that I have questions about because like, there's not a lot of literature on as far as the, uh, you know, just the overall, like there, there was one real big PhD done in the early 2000s. And other than that, not so much. And the PhD in the 2000s was on, was doing what exactly? It was sequence stratigraphy, primarily in the Bowen. Oh, okay. So this uh, Paul Grinch, Grinch, and I don't want to botch his last name, but he did a phenomenal PhD. He took outcrop, it was outcrop to corridor wireline logs, and uh, he basically broke down the like the sequence stratigraphic framework of the entire basin, from like these outcrops to the core to wireline, and then like try to project it across the basin. So he did a really good job there. So I was like, okay. Like sequence stratigraphically, this thing's been like, you know, there's been really good work done on it. Now it's just trying to like put the whole picture together. Right. And I think that's what, yeah, I think that's what's missing. So yeah, that's that's kind of where my my frame is going. And then talking with my advisors, we want to do like a whole Eastern Australia during the Permo Triassic and try to like reconstruct what was going on uh, from Queensland all the way to like Tasmania. So yeah, yeah that's I- going to be like the last step. What's telling what's screaming to me is this publication on the mud volcanism at the Marianas Trench. Let me share my screen. With more than 35 years of experience in the industry, Impact Exploration Services has you covered for all your mud logging, geosteering, and geoscience service needs. Impact Exploration Services covers every basin in the lower 48 and can customize the services to your needs. Impact Exploration Services sets the professional standard. And the next time you have problems to solve and questions to answer, think Impact Exploration Services. This episode is brought to you by Trunkline. You probably know Trunkline as the company that makes the legendary oilfield horizontal drilling socks. And it's true. Our drill baby drill socks featuring a heel-to-toe wellbore are 100% American-made and are designed right in the heart of the oil and gas industry. But did you know that Trunkline is also a revolutionary digital marketing tool that can transform the way you advertise your oil field services? For only $800 a month, you can showcase your company's project track record on Trunkline and our automated platform will boost your exposure through social media, email marketing, SEO, and more. Now, whenever one of your new customers asks you, Can you show me an example of your work? You can simply turn them to your Trunkline portfolio. It's more effective than a brochure, it's less expensive than sponsoring a whole other golf course, and easier than maintaining your website. Join more than 200 service companies on Trunkline by signing up at register.trunkline.com today. Let's go. So, Marianas Trench, dude. Everybody knows the big volcano story, right? Mm Mm-hmm. But now they're studying this thing. This thing is over 500 kilometers long. It's like 50 to 70 kilometers wide. These are massive serpentine mud volcanoes. Massive. Okay. So that's the setting. Except so are we looking, are we looking at bathymetry here? Or what is that? Go back. Yeah. So that's just bathymetry? Yeah. Okay. And you got the ocean, you got a subducting plate coming down across underneath everything like that, right? Yeah, so east to the west. East to the west. And when you get the data, 
as they have now. This is an active mud volcanism. So this stuff is coming up and making these huge piles of mud that are flattening out and you know, they'll catch sedimentary processes, especially if the sea level gets real low, it'll start migrating everywhere it can, right? Yeah. Sediment, laws of sedimentation take over. But look what's happening to the serpentinite with the metamorphic grade. Early on, certain things are only coming out. You got calcium, strontium, cesium. You know, these are very specific mm-hmm. elements that are coming out of the serpentinite. It's dehydrating in subduction. You get into the green schist facies. So you get a little bit more temperature on this thing, a little bit longer subduction going on. Now the muds are carrying a lot different metals. So, mm-hmm. and the brines are too. So I think you might have a chance if you can get a real good constraint on which direction this subducting plate was was going and you look at the muds in an area and you just run it laterally across itself, you might be able to mm-hmm. see this kind of elemental change in the muds from low-grade metamorphic, early subducting serpent, uh, serpentinization to the mid-phase to the blue schist facies. Like, you might be able to see that in the data across the, across that horizon. Mm. So do you think that's a function of depth? Or do you th- also do you think it's a function of structure as well? Like, do you see differences as far as, like, the horse versus the grobin? Like, maybe that's the differentiating factor as well? Not only the oh, yeah. subducting subducting margin, right? So it's like you have this transpression here and uplift versus something that's more extensional here. So now you have different things fractionating out. Yeah. Yep. You got a carbonate chimney building up out over here, and then you got these light kind of very what they call this in the in a in a and not in this paper, but in a paper that we just were looking at. They call it fluble flu, fluid mobile elements. They're the incompatible elements of the of the serpentinization reaction. It's the stuff that's going out with the fluids. It doesn't want to make rocks. It doesn't want to make the muds. It wants to stay in the yeah. fluid. Those are fluid mobile elements, which is a pretty interesting concept. So in, yeah. in the muds, though, you're going to get that massive amount of magnesium, you know, the cobalt, the nickel. You're going to see all these palladium, right? You're going to see all these uh, serpentine elements in the muds and if you mm-hmm. can trace that horizon on a lot in a long scale or like in a, in a large range you know you're mm-hmm. in that horizon i think you can you can see it in the trace data i think you can see it elementally in trace data where you potentially were as far as low-grade metamorphism versus high and then another key point like you just said maybe it's also an indication of what's actually the structure it's coming up because that's yeah that's it's it's making me think it has to do with more you know you're getting to the blue schist but that might be just the way like a heavier fraction it comes this way and the lighter stuff comes up that structure you know like what i mean structure for sure has has a has a role in this yeah one second let me keep talking sorry well this is a good paper, I think, for you to check out and, and yeah. pull from. They've done a lot of data. They went across those the Quaker, the Baby Blue, the Big Blue. They named all these massive mud volcanoes. They took samples of all that stuff, the brines, the muds. You can look at both, both fractionates. What fluid does it make and what, what are the muds it's making at the same time? And then you put mm-hmm. that in a paleo environment where you're trying to figure out an old system. 
you, I, I, I'm pretty confident, dude, you might be able to take, take this concept out and, and figure out where you are in, in the metamor in the, uh, serpentinization. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's really fucking fascinating. Okay. Cause all right, let me, let and me guess what, dude, not only it's going to be an oil and gas play that you're finding, I think you're going to stumble your way into some lithium brines too. Dude, I bet, man. Dude, and so let me share my screen real quick. Okay, so this is just like a general structure map of the bone bone basin. So cooler colors being deeper, uh, hotter colors being shallower. Uh, so the outline of the bone is kind of here, right? And you can see you have this, it's called the Tahum trough. And then you have this uplifted section through here. And then you have the Denison trough. So what's interesting about and the dude, this is dude, all roads, dude, lead to the Permian Basin. <laughs> <laughs> so you have this super deep section to the east, right? You have this uplifted area to the uh kind of centrally, and then you have this secondary trough to the west. Um, and what the believed mechanism for why you have this structure is you have like this extension, and then you have this uh uh what is it? Not sinestral. What's the other one? Dextral shearing. So that's right. I think that's right. Right yeah. lateral shearing is dextral. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you have this dextral shearing during the New England origin and the Jurassic, and that's what pops this up. So you have like that, like that rift system, and then you have shearing. And so now you pop this up and then like these sections drop out. But I'm just curious to see now that we're, we're, you know, we're, we're poking the bear a little bit to see if potentially because we have this deeper section in here this would indicate i don't know just different because if, if it's extensional right because most likely this is extensional right pre this is where the primary extension occurred you know what kind of serpentinite would come through here versus out here okay so you kind of see you kind of see what i'm talking about here is this currently what's going on or is yeah, this so this is modern this is modern structure it's rifting right now? No, 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 not anymore. So that that's that's the believed mechanism is that you know we have a rift system that was reactivated uh, later on, and then you have certain things getting uplifted, and you have block rotation along oh. this uh, this high through here. And, I'm sorry, uh, dude. I thought you were saying you you thought maybe during the time of deposition it was it was subducting plate. So during the time it's it's so back arc setting. So back arc basin. So this is the fucking wild shit. Okay. We just I just want I just want a picture. That's all I want. Okay. So yeah, so this is like the the back arc basin setting. Is like you have this subducting plate, right? And then you have volcanism occurring. And yeah, then the you have volcanisms right in front of that. Yeah. So mud volcanism would be in front of that. You have this basin beginning to form. And then uh you have this rifting that continues to occur. And then you have this back arc basin setting that kind of sits in between. Uh so that's like the model that they use in regards to what they think the bone is or how it was formed. Um, but then this my issue with this model, and I guess like this is just structure brain working, is like you have compression. Nope, nope, I don't want that. Uh, we have this, you know, compressional element here. Yeah. But we have simultaneous rifting that occurs. What's right. The so how do we? What? 
What's making the rift? The volcanism. So you have, like you kind of see here, so you have the subducting plate. You're melting this rock into the asthenosphere. So you have this volcanism that's coming up, and then it's just kind of rifting in this section through here. And that's what creates your back arc basin. Huh. Yeah. I wanted to poke Stan's brain about that. Yeah. Because I'm like, I feel like structurally, that's just like, you have this like shallow subduction. How do you have rifting and shallow subduction simultaneously? Right. I mean, one of them's got to be more powerful. Obviously, the subducting plate's got to be more powerful than what the volcanism. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's my thought. But again, right. This is like a model that's been used on the West Coast of the States and all through Australia, everywhere. Right. So this is like a. This is like a tried and true model. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it. in literature. Yep, it's, de- it's definitely happening and then I think the Marianas Trench stuff that we talked about for sure is there. There's got to be some mud volcanism that that's going on right there. That subducting plate has oceanic serpentosphere, either antigorite, lizardite, some kind of serpentinites in there. Mm-hmm. And then it's getting subducted. Mud volcanisms all happening along this bark back arc basin in that picture. Yeah. And that gives Maybe. you, I think, this why we why is there stuff flowing from north to south during subduction going perpendicular to that? I think if you if you use the mud volcanism argument, that allows you to bring sediments up and they are gonna flow more uh yeah. um, right along the axis of the trench. Yeah. So I think that would indicate the paleo flow direction. But then here's the other twist, right? So a lot of the sediments that you see, and this is what I need to start diving into more right there are fluvial sediments that are like semi-arid sediments hmm. right so they're like kind of like red sandstones kind really? of yeah so huh. it's kind of a trip but yeah like i said i'm getting to location i have multiple outcrops picked so one of them has been studied previously in that phd so that's where i want to like kind of check out and see the work that grinch did and then I'm going to go check out these other localities and nice. date them and then see like, oh, is the lithology the same or is thing are things like really changing? Nice. So, and yeah. you can get whole rock chemistry on this stuff. You're going to be able to get it. Yeah, so that's, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm pushing for at least. So that's awesome. Yeah. So I want to do whole rock chemistry and then I'm going to do uranium lead, uh, lithium haptium. And I'm going to try to do rhenium osmium on shales. If I can get any shales and then uh, get some carriaging going. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, but then, uh, yeah, we'll see. Because also, here's another thing. I'm presenting this. Dude, I've done no work. (laughs) But I am I got accepted to do this thing called GeoPitch at this conference uh, through PISA, which is the Petroleum Exploration Society of Australia. Okay. So they're doing a big conference in Brisbane. And I'm going to go down there and do like a pitch for my research. And yeah, Uh, I don't know. Hopefully get some more funding to do some more cool stuff. Hell yeah. Yeah, dude. Right on. Okay. So you get to drill down to some fun stuff. Um, what do you want to do? So next week after NAPE, we're going to get back together and you're, you're going to want to show Stan, Stan some stuff or what do you want to do? What are we going to dive into on this next episode? Yeah. I'm thinking just like picking Stan's brain, you know, cause right now I'm not, I mean, I'm just doing more research. If anything, I'm not really, or like background research. Right. So just like reading and stuff. But uh, yeah, I really just want to pick Stan's brain on the magma metal series in regards to, you know, various tectonic 
regimes and like that that's that's kind of where cool. i, I want to start aiming that conversation yeah. just so i can wrap my head around it a little better because like yeah like i said it's just so much yeah dude because if you can find paraluminous granites that are the same age as the sediments in the bowen then you can argue that you had you're you're set you're doing all this during flat subduction or mm-hmm. vice versa, if you find metaluminous uh, granites or volcanism, right? Rhyolites, andesites, basalts, anything that says, all right, you're talking the same age as the Bowen sediments now, and it's metaluminous. Now you're in a steep subduction setting. Yeah. Just by and that, I, right? And that's, and that's what I want to really, really start to pick out, right? Because then if I can take that data and then expand it throughout all of Eastern Australia, then I can oh, actually yeah. start putting together a picture of like what was going on on the continent during that time period. Yeah. And like, yeah. And then setting up that foundation right between the Permo Triassic, then you can get into all the other smaller basins and you can start understanding those in a lot higher detail, especially the basins that are like massive oil production right now. Yeah. Aramanga and the Sturat and all that. Tectonic framework dude is so big. Once you get that and you're like, all right, I'm locked. That's the framework that we're working in. Now yeah. when you get approached with the with the new data or different data from other basins or whatever, you got something to plug it into. Yeah. You can't exactly. Just, yeah. Yeah. It's like like I said, there's there's tons of work that have been done, but I definitely think they're, you know, putting together this piece was gonna like, yeah, is gonna be humongous to unlocking like a bunch of the other stuff that was going on in Australia. But yeah, because it's like you have like this Permian-Triassic depicenter system throughout Eastern Australia. And then you have this period of kind of like nothing, not nothing, but like nothing preserved in the rock record. And then like Jurassic, it like picks up like crazy. Right on. So, yeah, you got to just get I think if you can get one thing that uh, ready for that conversation with Stan for him to look at is an igneous geologic map. You know, like yeah. something with some detail. Here's a granite, granite diorites, gabbros, volcanism, mm-hmm. andesites, and things like that. Now you can kind of see, and he can quickly, I think, start uh, picking apart. There's your paraluminous story. There's a metaluminous story. And then if there's age dates and you got a good age locked in on the Bowen Basin and your sediments and what you're targeting, now you're just core, you're finding all this similar age stuff and you're trying to get that tectonic setting figured out. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> that's badass, dude. Well, cool, man. I love you, Skips. Keep at it. Well, I'll uh, love you, big dog. <laughs> say, tell the family I say hello. I will. Uh, and yeah, dude, have get some sleep.